Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Thursday, February 25th. I'm Carolina Sarasa, and these are today's headlines. A new coronavirus variant emerging in New York City as health officials race to get Americans vaccinated ahead of further virus mutations. The latest jobs reports showing slight improvement when it comes to employment, but the White House still pushing for a massive stimulus effort to help the economy. And the Biden administration making a major change to the green card program, the latest on efforts to overturn former President Trump's immigration policies. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. Today, we begin with this, the new job report, unemployment claims falling to 730,000, but layoffs remain high with the economy still under pressure from the pandemic. That total represents a substantial decrease from the previous week. And with pressure mounting on President Biden to help the economy, bipartisan talks remain on pause on a major stimulus deal. However, as Andrea Linares explains, Democrats are promising to move forward as soon as tomorrow. Lawmakers are trying to come to some kind of agreement on a COVID-19 relief bill, with news from the House Majority Leader that they plan to vote on the $1.9 trillion plan Friday. Once the House votes on the COVID relief bill, it'll move to the Senate. But with pushback from Republicans, it'll take a yes vote from every Democrat in the Senate for the bill to pass. What we have seen here at the beginning of this administration is pretty far left across the board. And the best evidence of it that's currently before us is the way they've chosen to take a totally partisan approach to COVID relief. The White House seems determined to do this uh, with only Democratic votes. I think it's a, I think it's a mistake, but uh, if they want to try it, that's really up to them. Republicans argue the COVID relief package is a job killer that costs too much money and does little to reopen schools or businesses closed due to the pandemic. And it's our hope that some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle will stop playing politics and support the effort to meaningfully support the American people. Meanwhile, an awkward moment for Republicans. Two House Republican leaders are divided on whether former President Trump should speak at this weekend's conservative political action conference in Orlando. They were asked about it during a news conference, but were not on the same page. Yes, he should. Congresswoman Cheney, uh, that's up to CPAC. I've, I've been clear in my views about uh, President Trump and, and the extent to which following the extent to which following January 6th, uh, I don't I don't believe that he should be playing a role in the future of the party or the country. And another battle is brewing in Washington. President Biden on the brink of facing his first cabinet nomination defeat. Two Senate panels are delaying a vote on Biden's pick to head the Office of Management and Budget. Neera Tandon potentially sinking her confirmation. Well, I think there's no secret she is lacking the votes right now. She's working hard to try to get the votes. Tandon is facing criticism for her previous Twitter attacks on Republicans, including tweets that compare Senator Mitch McConnell to Voldemort. You wrote that Susan Collins is, quote, the worst 
that Ted, Tom Cotton is a fraud, that vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. Uh, you called Leader McConnell Moscow Mitch and Voldemort. How do you plan to mend fences and build relationships with members of Congress? I deeply regret and apologize for my language. In a tweet from 2017, Tandon slammed Senator Lisa Murkowski for supporting then-President Trump's tax cuts. Tandon retweeted Murkowski with the caption, quote, no offense, but this sounds like you're high on your own supply, end quote. Murkowski, who has said she's undecided about Tandon's confirmation, learned about the tweet just yesterday. For now, the White House is standing by her. Well, there's one nominee to lead the budget department. Her name's Neera Tandon, and that's who we're continuing to fight for. Two critical senators the White House is watching closely are Kirsten Sinema, a Democrat from Arizona, and Lisa Murkowski, a Republican from Alaska, who haven't said which way they'll vote. If Tandon's nomination does stall out, it would be the first defeat of a high-profile Biden pick subject to Senate approval. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, EU News. Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And now growing investigations into the insurrection that took place on the Capitol by supporters of former President Trump. Ahead of today's testimony before a House committee, one of the heads of the Capitol Police Department saying that the department's preparation was based on information they got from the FBI and other partners in the intelligence community. But department officials say the intelligence had told them to prepare for a protest, but there was no indication of an attack. More testimony is likely to be released today. Meanwhile, in other news out of D.C., President Biden signed an executive order on the economy Wednesday. He wants his administration to conduct a 100-day review of critical supply chains. The team will work to identify and fix potential cracks in those supply chains that could cause shortages of items like chips inside cars, minerals in flat-screen TVs, batteries in electric vehicles, and ingredients in life-saving medicines. The president also hopes to find out how much of that supply is dependent on countries like China. In immigration news, the White House announced it is rolling back former President Trump's executive order blocking green cards, opening the doors to immigrants that the former president had shut down during the pandemic. Edwin Pitti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin. That's right, Carolina. President Biden continues to take actions to revoke executive orders on immigration signed by Trump. Through a proclamation, Biden is putting an end to Trump's order that temporarily banned some immigrant visas during the coronavirus pandemic. The White House said that Biden's decision was based on the fact that Trump's order, and I quote, does not advance the interests of the United States. To the contrary, it harms the United States, including by preventing certain family members of UN citizens and lawful permanent residents from joining their families here. The Trump 2020 executive order blocked green cards under the argument that they needed to reserve jobs and healthcare access for citizens. That affected directly over 26,000 people per month. Biden added that not getting rid of that order would have hurt even more industries in the U.S. that utilize talent from around the world and also individuals who were selected to receive the opportunity to apply for immigrant visas through the fiscal year 2020. This proclamation marks just the latest effort from the Biden administration to dismantle the hardline immigration policies championed by the Trump administration. 
During the campaign trail, Biden accused Trump of creating immigration policies that separated U.S. citizens from their families and caused employers to lose out on potential talent. That is why he continues to outline an ambitious immigration agenda to introduce comprehensive immigration legislation and to maintain programs that provide relief to immigrants living in the U.S. Live in Washington, D.C., Carolina, back to you. Thank you for that report, Edwin Pitti. And now for more on the immigration changes coming to the Biden administration, let's go to Pedro Rojas. He has more on how the U.S. government is handling the process of migrants who have been waiting in Mexico at the Matamoros camp. Pedro, what's the latest? Well, at least 25 families that had remained in the Matamoros camp will be crossing into the United States. They will be processed by U.S. Border and Customs Protection by agents. After they do that, humanitarian groups will pick them up exactly from this location or any vicinity in the vicinity where we are, and then will be taken either to bus terminals, airports, or to shelters in case they don't have a way to get to their final destination in the, in the day today. But now, here, and that pathway that you see at the very end of this of this structure, that's the pathway that the families will be arriving through. We were able to speak with Sister Norma Pimentel from Catholic Charities, as well as Attorney Jody Goodwin, which is representing all the 700-plus families that have remained in this camp for the last couple of years. And the excitement is pretty high among them. Let's take a listen. I feel so great that finally these families who have suffered so long have been heard and we'll begin a process to enter and continue that legal uh, asylum process the way any human being deserves to be heard and be processed. Um, they're going to be processed on the Mexican side, um, make sure that they qualify to come in. Not everybody will qualify. Um, they qualify, and if they're COVID negative, then they'll be able to come in, and um, they'll be processed here at the port of entry with CBP. And then after that, uh, those that have travel arrangements will be able to uh, leave here from Brownsville. And those that need overnight um, um, stays will be able to stay in a shelter here. Now, what all of this is ongoing in regards to the MPP families that have been in Mexico for the last couple of years at this camp in Matamoros, just a few blocks away down the street from where we are at the bus terminal here in Brownsville, Dozens of families continue to be released. We were able to see them. They spoke to us and they told us basically that they were apprehended at the border in the last three days. They were processed and now they are released here into the United States. They go through a, a quick uh, COVID-19 testing and immediately they are able to border buses to continue to their final destination inside of the United States. At this pace, we can uh, assume that in the next few days, we will see a gigantic number of families, migrant families, traveling from the south, from the South Texas region, into the rest of the country. Back to you. Thank you, Pedro, for that report. And as controversy continues to follow the decision to reopen a facility for migrant children in Texas, another center could also open its doors for the same purpose, this one in Homestead, Florida. Jonathan Mejia has more on that story. The news of the possible reopening of this detention center for unaccompanied migrant children in Homestead, Florida, has reignited a sense of outrage. Nora Sandingo sponsors more than a thousand unaccompanied minors, some of whom were detained at the Homestead facility. 
I am outraged. This was something so horrendous that we had already experienced with the former administration. And to revive all this with someone who has offered us so much sounds grotesque. Activist Guadalupe de la Cruz says it's not known if the center will be managed by the same private company that got the multi-million dollar contract under the Trump administration. So this is another point we are against, that there should be no profit on a child that we see has already been through enough to get to the country, that has been separated from his or her family. This center opened under the Obama administration in 2016. It closed and reopened under Trump, and in 2019, it closed again. And so we are here to stand up. Vice President Kamala Harris visited it when she was campaigning and criticized it harshly. In an interview with Ilya Calderon last September, she said this about the migrant detention centers. It's, it's absolutely outrageous. And yes, um, Joe Biden and I, among the many things we will do is we will shut down the private detention centers and facilities. No hay razón por la, por la que tener a estos jóvenes en... There is no reason to keep these young people in centers that are like prisons where they have no freedom to move around in an almost military-like routine. The White House spokesperson says that the intention is not to separate the children from their parents, but to move them quickly to living with families or to safe places. Reported by Vilma Tarasona in Homestead, Florida, this is Jonathan Mejia, U News. Thank you for that report, Jonathan Mejia. And some sweet news for an immigrant from Honduras. That man has left a sanctuary where he has been taking shelter for three and a half years. Alex Garcia finally stepped out of Christ Church in Maplewood, Missouri on Wednesday. He was reunited with his wife and five children. Garcia escaped violence and poverty in Honduras more than 15 years ago. Garcia left the sanctuary after the Biden administration issued new immigration enforcement guidelines. Missouri Congressman Cory Bush has introduced a bill to provide a permanent residency to Garcia. A new research revealing that a new variant may be spreading quickly in New York City. This as vaccine makers try to stay ahead of those mutations. Lorraine Casares has the latest on the crisis. In New York City, people bundled up, waiting for their vaccines. This as the city now deals with a new threat. Two separate research teams say they found a new coronavirus variant in New York City. The new variant, which has two mutations that may help it evade the body's natural immune response and antibody treatments, was first seen in the city in November and right now accounts for more than a quarter of cases there. We really need to accelerate our, our rate of vaccination, and it's all hands on deck to try to get the American people vaccinated. Vaccine manufacturers trying to come up with ways to fight back. Pfizer testing a third dose of its vaccine to be administered at least six months after the initial doses to see if participants develop antibodies to new variants. Moderna taking similar action, announcing they've designed an updated version of their vaccine that could better respond to the South African African variants, which studies have suggested may be more resistant. It's been shipped to the U.S. National Institutes of Health for a clinical study. The new vaccine will be evaluated both as a booster shot for people who have been inoculated and as a primary vaccine for people who have not. I need the public to understand that you're going to hear almost every day about a new variant somewhere in the United States because uh, we're looking for them. The predominant variant, the one that has been the raised the most alarm, the UK variant, 117, 
is completely susceptible to all the vaccines that are currently on the market or that are coming on the market in the United States. Meanwhile, in Texas, concerns of a potential new wave after extreme weather left thousands with no option to socially distance. They didn't care about COVID. We had a bunch of shelters that were open to keep people warm. And you know that a shelter is a giant Petri dish. So a lot of, I do expect that in the next few days, we're gonna have a small spike in the number of cases. The good news is people are lining up in masses to get their first doses. And in more good news, the CDC is saying that they do expect for the downward trend in deaths to continue at least for the next few weeks. Also, the FDA is set to meet tomorrow for a final review of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which could be approved before the end of this week. Back to you, Carolina. Thank you, Lorraine, for that live report. And now the National Institutes of Health is launching a new effort to research the long-term effects of COVID-19. A study found 30% of people who have had COVID-19 still have symptoms nine months after infection. They include fatigue and in some people cough, trouble breathing and brain fog. Researchers fear the impact could be profound given the number of people who have tested positive for the virus. Meanwhile, nearly 60% of Americans say teachers from kindergarten through 12th grade should be vaccinated for COVID-19 before students return to the classroom. The remaining 40% say schools should reopen regardless as soon as possible. That's according to a Pew Research Center study published on Wednesday. The findings are based on more than 10,000 U.S. adults nationwide. More of you news after the short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. Over a million people in Texas are still without drinking water one week after the historic storm that affected the power grid and the water system. Experts estimate the damage from the storm will cost billions, and that severe weather also showing just how fragile our infrastructure is to climate change. And joining me now to talk about this is Kim Cab. She's a professor at Georgia Tech. Thank you so much for your time, Professor. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, what is the connection between climate change and the severe winter weather we saw last week? Well, we actually know from decades of research that there's a very strong link between climate change and any number of different kinds of weather extremes. Now, that said, the kinds of winter weather extremes that we saw in the last weeks, including those in Texas, are the ones that are have the least, least strong links to ongoing climate change. There are any number of different kinds of weather extremes that we know are very strongly linked to climate change, including droughts, floods, wildfires, and heat waves. 
And these things are the kinds of events that begin to stress our critical infrastructure. And we've seen that, unfortunately, our critical infrastructure is not up for the climate impacts that we're facing today. And of course, even less so for those that we know will accelerate over coming years and decades. And one of the most important things to remember about these kinds of climate-related extremes is that those impacts are going to hit the most vulnerable people in our communities first and worst. And so that's one of the take-homes to me from these last weeks of damagings. Professor, five years ago, scientists said that we have 12 years to avert the worst consequences of climate change. Are we heading in the right direction? Well, unfortunately, there are a number of very uh, promising signs amidst a, a, a canvas that may look fairly bleak where we sit today. We have so much work to do, but it's really heartening to look around and see so much change happening at many different scales. Of course, we have a new administration in D.C. that has taken this issue on uh, across all aspects of the federal government, exactly the kind of bold visions that we need. And of course, uh, working hard to work with our international partners on action. And we also know that there's momentum across all the cities in America, um, some states making very bold actions. And so the message today is uh, we need to continue to make some noise and let people know that this is an issue that most the majority of Americans really care about and want to see uh, movement on. And then, of course, as we think about those uh, ways that we can solve climate change uh, within our own cities, states and at the national level, uh, keeping in mind the climate justice issue, making sure that we have taking every opportunity to advance justice and equity on the way to these lasting, impactful climate solutions. And thinking about the future, what can we expect in the next decade? And how about the next 20 to 30 years? Well, you know, we know so many of the impacts that we're going to be expecting are already at our doorsteps. And the headlines are unfortunately a clear uh, prediction for what we can expect. Uh, we see annual wildfires across California. Of course, uh, in the global south, uh, many different devastating impacts. Uh, the Australian wildfires leaping to mind as well as uh, devastating uh, tropical storms that are lashing coastlines around the world. Uh, so going forward, science tells us that we know what we need to do to prepare. The question is, how are we going to move quickly enough to build the kind of planning on the ground at the community level uh, with support from the states and the federal governments to help keep people and infrastructure and economies safe over the next decade? That's really the hard work that lies ahead and is unfortunately, uh, we're very far behind the curve given the value that science has given us in, in really seeing the future quite clearly. Well, thank you so much for your time, Professor Kib Cobb, Professor at Georgia Tech. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.